0: You know, it's amazing to me how, um, things work together. Sandra and I did not collaborate about the music, but, uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things that have to do with our soul today. You know, I, I don't know about you, but this last week has been kind of rough on me, you know, and I'm, I'm sure as well for you, cause, you know, think about the hellishness that happened at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. You know, it's not been far from my mind and my heart, and I'm sure it's not been from yours either the depths of that wickedness this young man is on the other side now and he's going to answer the holy god for what he's done how we need to continue to pray for all the grieving families even his you know today is memorial day weekend as well and tomorrow we're going to be setting aside at least i'm hoping you will setting aside to to spend some time remembering those who gave their lives in defense for our country. And our country, it's wicked though, isn't it? You know, They went before us and they gave the the ultimate price, but our country is so wicked. And how we need to pray that the Lord would have mercy on us and bring revival to our land. You know, as the Lord told us, judgment begins in his house. And so with that said, I'd like to, before we begin the message, I'd like to, spend a moment in prayer uh, concerning these things. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, our souls um, are heavy, but we just saying to you and about you and for you, it is well with our soul. Lord, we carry these burdens because we see the, the devastation of what sin does. But Lord, we know that you are not just here in this place. You are also with the families who lost their kids, the 19 of them in that, in that hellishness. Lord, we're asking that you would bring your peace, bring your comfort to them. We pray also, Lord, that everything would be uncovered, what needs to be uncovered. And Lord, steps will be taken so things like this won't happen in the future. Father, we also think about the men, the women, uh, the kids, really that have gone before us and have, have paid the ultimate price in defense for our country. Lord, we we lift up um, all those who have lost loved ones in recent days, especially. Lord, in in, in senseless, really, in my mind, anyway, senseless acts of military blunderings, we think about Afghanistan most recently. So, Father, uh, we lift up our country to you. We lift up our military to you. Lord, it's becoming more and more weak. And so, Lord, we don't rely upon the military. We rely upon you. And we're asking, God, that you would help us, that we would turn back to you, that you would turn this nation back to righteousness. Lord, you said that sin uh, is a reproach to any people, but righteousness exalts the nation. So we're asking that you would help us. And, Lord, I pray that it begins here at Grace United. Lord, that uh, as a word's been said, that we draw a circle and we stand in the circle and we say, Lord, may revival begin with me may begin in this circle. So, Lord, I pray for all of us that you'll help us. You'll lead us, you'll guide us, that you'll help us, Lord, to live loyally to you. So, Lord, we're lifting up this time to you and ask God that by your spirit, that you'll help us understand what you have for us today as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, as I say, it comes in threes. You know, today is no different. You know, as we just pray, we remember the memorial, the 31, uh, 21 people and the perpetrator who lost their lives last few days. We will observe Memorial Day tomorrow. And our time in the Word today even centers around a memorial service. See, only with this memorial service, we will celebrate because we celebrate what Jesus has done. We remember what he's done. And just as importantly, we remember who he is when we partake of holy communion jesus told us this we are to do so in remembrance of him as we prepare to participate in lord's supper though i want to share some things some thoughts with you that have profoundly affected my thinking and my heart about the person and work of the lord jesus in recent days and my relationship with him thoughts that have blown my mind and have Filled my heart with joy. And my prayer is that I'll be able to adequately communicate these things with you in such a way that your mind will be blown and your heart will be filled with joy as well. Today, I want us to catch just a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he's done on a cosmic level. On a level that, as Webster says, characterized by greatness in extent, intensity, and comprehensiveness. I want us to catch a glimpse of how the Lord Jesus has reached across time and affected every person who was and is and will be on this planet, all the way from Adam and Eve down to the last person who will be born sometime in the future. I want us to see not only how wide is the scope of the work of the Lord Jesus, but also how high and exalted he is as well but I I don't want to leave him up there and out there, so to speak. In sharing with you how big and great the Lord is, I want us to have a much deeper appreciation for who he is and what he's done for us in particular as his followers. And I want us to try to help us to grasp two things as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. That he has given us soul rest and that he has given us soul freedom. At the heart of the matter, of all things, is what the Lord established at the Last Supper, which is the New Covenant. You remember what the New Covenant is, don't you? What Jesus established, New Covenant in my blood. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 31, to 34. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah within him, in them, and I will write it on their hearts becomes the most precious thing about them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't it amazing that the Lord actually would say this, that he will remember our sin no more at least of those of his people. Every follower of Christ is in reality a new covenant Christian. The Torah of God is written on our hearts. We have an intimate relationship with the Lord in our experience and not merely in a theological remote sense or even an academic sense. Our sins are forgiven now and forever. The Holy Spirit lives within us It is these things, and really so much more as well, that we remember as Christ has established all things new covenant in the upper room the night before he was crucified. As I mentioned, one of the things I want us to grasp is this incredible thing that I call soul rest. You know, Jesus experienced soul rest. Scripture describes him as gentle and humble and fully obedient to the Father. Hear his words as Matthew recorded them in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now let me make three important comments here to explain what Jesus is talking about. First, notice the invitation the Lord gave to all who were, according to the context of Jesus' words here, spiritually weary and sick of heavy religious Burdens the scribes and the Pharisees were placing upon people. The scribes and Pharisees, now they were masters at laying heavy yokes on his people. They were inventing all kinds of rules in addition to the written law of God, the Torah. But Jesus came along, and what did he do? He vigorously pushed back against what they were doing. Again, he described himself as gentle and lowly in heart, but his gentleness. And lowliness of heart was directed primarily toward his relationship with his father. You know, he invited the people to learn of him, to take upon themselves his easy yoke, as he talked about in Matthew 1130. Jesus invites others to learn of him regarding primarily of his relationship to his father as they witnessed Jesus' greatest delight. And what was that? It was obedience to the written Torah only and not the additional laws that the Pharisees and scribes put upon people. Second, when Jesus offered soul rest to those who would learn of him, this idea was not original with him. He didn't make this up, in other words. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, offered his people soul rest back in his day as well. And here's what Jeremiah said, and this is what Jesus was referring to in Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you find rest for your So what were the ancient paths? Where was the good way? It's in Torah. And what's Torah? These are God's ways that God gave to his people. But it was not enough just to simply know the Torah. God's people needed to live by the Torah. They were to order their lives under it. And this is what Jesus referred to when he said that his followers would find rest for their souls. See, Jesus' offer of rest was not to stop working in the things of God, not to cease from labor, but far from it. No, his offer of soul rest was wrapped up in this, that his followers understand and apply only the written Torah. And not the oral traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Lord Jesus was saying, in essence, take my easy yoke, the written Torah, upon yourself. Learn of my heartfelt love for my Father, expressed in obedience to the written word. Now, I want to make clear something before I give you my third comment about this, so that you won't think I'm, des- I'm describing Jesus in anything less than who he actually is. See, Jesus, is God in the flesh. True? 100% God, 100% man. And how I'm about to describe the Lord Jesus, though, in no way diminishes his uniqueness. But I want to emphasize something here. I want to emphasize his humanity at this point. See, Jesus, as complete, sinless man, he understood something about the Torah. That's why he was so enamored with it. That's why he said, hey, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the commandments were wrapped up in Torah. He was absolutely committed to Moses' statement about the law of God, the Torah, in Deuteronomy 32, 47. Here's what it says. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. See, Jesus understood Moses to say, Torah is the most excellent way To live. Did not Yahweh say in Deuteronomy 8 3 what he said that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord? And did not Jesus even quote this statement in his hour of need? You remember the story, don't you? At the end of his 40 day fast, when the tempter came along and suggested that Jesus make the stones into bread. And what did Jesus say? He quoted Deuteronomy 8 3 to defeat the devil. See, Jesus offered soul rest to all who would follow him. He wanted them to be like him, completely sold out to the relationship and ways of the Father, for Jesus had an undying love for him. Not only did Jesus offer soul rest to his disciples, he himself experienced it and demonstrated complete rest of soul throughout his life, regardless of what he encountered. Now. What did he encounter? What did he face? Now, immediately our minds go somewhere, don't we? His abandonment by his disciples, his arrests, his illegal trials, his torture, his crucifixion, and his burial. We go there. But what else did Jesus experience when the times were good? Well, he was mocked. He was laughed at. He was accused of even being an illegitimate son. He was hated by those whom people held up in the highest esteem of their culture. Even members of his own family thought that he was crazy. People came to get their needs from him. And when he told them the truth about things, they rejected him. They walked away. I can go on and on, but you get the point. Truly, Jesus' life was one episode of sorrow and hate fest after another. No, not that he hated them, but because he was of the truth and he spoke the truth, that's why they hated him. But Jesus' soul rests shown through over and over again, especially when times got tough for him. Remember, Jesus had such a love for the Father. Remember what he had said in John 14 31. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me, which is what? Go to the cross. And I do this to show the world that I love the Father. See, it's been said, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he had you on his mind. No, he didn't. He had the Father on his mind. See, Jesus had a fierce, uncompromising love for the Father, even though it cost him his life. Jesus had joy and peace as well in the midst of his very trying, tough times. Drink in the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in the hours leading up to his crucifixion in John 15, 11. He said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In John 14, 27, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what did the Lord display throughout his life, especially in the most trying times of his life? Love, joy, peace. You know, that kind of sounds like, um, wait for it. How about spiritual fruit? See, as a complete man, out of his love for the Father, because he walked in ways of Torah, the Lord Jesus, experience soul rest. This is the first thing the Lord Jesus established and invited us to experience as new covenant Christians. Like our Lord, we experience soul rest when we walk in the ways of Torah seeking to be loyal disciples of Jesus. The second thing Jesus established in the new covenant is what I call soul freedom soul freedom. Like the soul rest that Jesus offers, central to soul freedom is Torah as well. Well, how do we know this? In the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached, indeed anybody ever preached, Jesus seemed to give impossible challenges to his disciples. And we know one of those impossible challenges, Matthew 5.48 Therefore you must be what? Perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. How about you? But first, when I first hear that, when I hear that as a disciple, it's like, what? Are you kidding me? I can't do this. I can't be perfect. But what did he mean by this? What did Jesus mean when he said you must be perfect? Of course, again, the operative word is perfect. When we think about this, what comes to our minds when we think about that word? It means flawlessness. It means no imperfect behavior. It means no mistakes. Now, for the longest time, I was unable to understand what this was all about, what Jesus really meant. As I studied and meditated on the Lord and on the Torah, my understanding began to change to make things in my thinking more in line with what Jesus actually meant. So I want to take you on a brief tour to kind of set things up, and then I want to share with you what I'm convinced Jesus indeed meant when he said his disciples must be perfect. Toward the middle of Matthew 5, Jesus declared this about the law, about the Torah in Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to do away or to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what do you mean by that? Jesus said, basically, I have come to tell you what the law, the Torah, is really all about, to fill it full, to help you understand what it really means. And to make matters even more interesting, and I'm sure that there were some scribes and Pharisees listening to Jesus in Matthew 5.20, he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine what that must have been like to hear those words for the very first time? How would you have responded if you were a faithful Jew listening to Jesus' words? <laughs> or even the scribes, the Pharisees. So I imagine all those within earshot of Jesus would have been slack-jawed. See, before Jesus even began his ministry, the Pharisees, they were the epitome of spirituality. Everything they said, the people did to include obeying the oral traditions, which the Pharisees insisted carried with them divine authority, authority on the same level as the written word of God, the Torah. See, these were the heavy burdens, the heavy yoke Jesus talked about when he called out the scribes and Pharisees and he pronounced many woes on them. But was it possible in the mind of Jesus that the disciples could exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Apparently it was. Otherwise, why would Jesus say it? So how was their righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, in what Jesus told them. It was in how Jesus' disciples applied Jesus' interpretation of the Torah. Between Matthew 5, 21 and 47 in the passage, he repeats himself a number of times with these words. You've heard it said, and who who told them that? scribes and Pharisees. You heard it said, but I say to you. You heard it said, I say to you over and over again. When the scribes and Pharisees said, don't murder, Jesus said, don't demean others by calling them dehumanizing names. It begins in the heart. When the scribes and Pharisees said, don't commit adultery, as in the act, Jesus said, don't look upon a woman with lustful intent. So Jesus laid out how the scribes and Pharisees' understanding of the Torah was inferior. They were caught up in obeying the mere letter of the law. But in a nutshell, we see this in other passages of Scripture where Jesus elevated and summed up the entire Torah in two commands. What was it? From the heart, love God, love your neighbor. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, he was in effect saying this, this is how your righteousness can exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus told them, when you follow me, you will follow Torah in the right way. The way of the Pharisees is inferior. Following their way means a defective righteousness. So we have two camps here. Who are you going to follow? Which way are you going to go? That's what Jesus was telling his disciples or even his would-be disciples. It is then Jesus says, therefore, you must be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. So given this context, it is clear that Jesus did not tell his disciples that they were to keep the Torah flawlessly, with no violations. Rather, they had to keep Torah in the way Jesus told them to keep it. In essence, Jesus said, My way is the right way to follow the Lord's word, not in the way that the scribes and Pharisees tell you. The word in verse 48, as translated here as perfect, does not mean sinless perfection in this context. What it means is he's simply telling his disciples, As you follow my ways, you will become what the Father wants you to be. Perfect in this context means to be complete or to be mature or to fill up what's lacking. That's what this word is. It does not mean flawless behavior. See, the Lord never demanded his people to obey his ways flawlessly. Did you know that? See, scripture tells us this in Revelation 13. Scripture says that Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And he was slain, why? For sin. See, in short, before he created us, he knew that we would sin. And at just the right time, Christ came and his death took care of sin. Isn't that right? Though Christ died for sins, obviously sin is all around us, is 21 people whose lives were taken by a sinful kid is proof of this. But I say again, gloriously, Christ completely took care of sin. And as followers of Jesus, this is where soul freedom begins. So what is soul freedom? It's a great and glorious, magnificent paradigm shift. It's a fundamental change in our point of view regarding our relationship with Jesus. See, we who are followers of Jesus, when we have soul freedom, we do not engage in sin management. You know what sin management is? Let me tell you. Our focus is not on how many specific sins we have committed. Lord, did I commit this sin and this sin and this sin today? Or if we have them all confessed up, am I worried about, Lord, did I really confess this sin, all these sins? Because, Lord, if I have missed one and I forget to ask for forgiveness, are you going to reject me after all? See, how many of Jesus' disciples today, and maybe you're one of them, that you wonder whether at some point he's going to reject you? Because, you know, when we go to him with the same sin over and over again, are we tempted at sometimes wondering? Is the Lord's patience going to wear out? Is he eventually going to say, you know, I'm done with you. you come to me too many times with that same sin. Now, I'm not saying that we should not and we do not you know, neglect our sin. See, the Lord has given us all that we need to take care of sin in our lives. And that's called confession. That's called repentance. And his promise to restore us to fellowship when we do. See, when we really understand soul freedom, we don't wonder whether God has accepted us. We don't focus on our sin when it comes to living in soul freedom. Rather, here's where our focus lies. It's on loyalty to King Jesus. For Christians, it's no longer a sin question. It's a son question. And there is an amazing difference between the two. Now, may think this is kind of a weird thing that that I'm saying to you. But if we believe what God's Word says and not our theological interpretation of it, soul freedom will hopefully be the result. You're probably thinking, Glenn, where are you going with that? (laughs) But let me explain my pair of statements here and tackle the negative one first. It is no longer a sin question when it comes to soul freedom. As we know, Sin entered into the world because of our rebellion against God and his ways. Isn't that right? Paul was clear about this in his letter to the Romans, that when sin entered the world, death followed. Images of God were to die. Decay of the planet, weeds, natural disasters, all this kind of stuff. And sin, of course, got God's attention. And when it multiplied, God sent us a flood to destroy everything on planet Earth. Now fast forward many years, thousands of years. And at the right time, God sent his son. In the days of his ministry, John saw Jesus. And he described him in a certain way. Look, there goes the Lamb of God. Takes away what? The sin of the world. Let's listen carefully what he says. As God's Lamb, what does Jesus do? He takes away the sin of his people. Right? No, that's not what he said. As God's lamb, Jesus takes away the sin of the elect. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? Sins of the world. Sin of the world. I've got to hold this thought here because I'm going to share something else. 1 John two two, we find this statement. He, Jesus, is the propitiation. Now, what does propitiation mean? It means that God is totally, absolutely, completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ for sin. And so Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, great, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. My friends, do you realize the magnitude of this truth? We say we know it. We say we understand it. But when was the last time we really stopped to take in what this means? See, when God's word says that Christ died for all sin, that's exactly what it means. Straightforward. There's no interpretation here needed. When Christ died, he took our sins upon himself. You know this. No argument there. If we believe this truth, we also have to say, that Christ took upon himself the sins of every other person on the planet, from Adam and Eve all the way down. For example, the sins of Adolf Hitler, he took upon himself. Joseph Stalin. Kim Jong-un. Joe Biden. And believe it or not, Donald Trump. the shooter who entered Ross Elementary School and who is now assumed in temperature. Christ died for these sins of these people too. Let's let that sink in. This is the extent of Christ's death for all time, for all sin. Not only has Christ died for the sins of all people of all time, there's something else we need to take into account. See, Christ's death, not only paid for all sins, he's also paid for all persons. Now, don't go any further than what I'm telling you. and Follow me with this, okay? He died for all persons. Here's what this means. Christ's death means that he owns all people. Because when you buy something, we're going to talk about this in a second, when you buy something, that means you own it, right? Christ's death means he owns all people. And if we believe our Bibles, we have to come to this conclusion. See, the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, talks about false teachers actively seeking to turn God's people away from the truth. And Peter notes the end of these false teachers that they're going to be destroyed. But I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, 1, to catch something very significant right here. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to put your eyes on the text here. This is, this is important that we get this. It's amazing, profound thought, profound truth that, that Peter gave us. 2 Peter 2, 1 reads this way. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, get this, even denying the master who what? Bought them. Bought them. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The blood of Jesus bought these people. And again, if he bought them, that means what? He owns them. So what do we make of this? Simply put, the blood of Christ, the master, Bought even false teachers, the very ones who deny the master and who seek to turn Christians away from him. You know, I've consulted a whole lot of commentaries in my library, and they say some strange things about these false teachers. Like, for example, these false teachers, they, they at one time professed Christ, and, and they're still going to be saved, but they're going to lose their rewards. <laughs> really? <laughs> they deny Jesus or they were never saved in the first place. That doesn't bear out with the context at all. It doesn't explain the truth that Christ bought these false teachers. Again, the blood of Christ bought and paid for even those who deny him. This is what the Bible says. Psalm 2.8 speaks of a much more comprehensive group of people that the Messiah, Christ, has his inheritance. Let's listen in on a conversation that the father and the son has specifically of who makes up his inheritance. Psalm 2, 8 says, ask of me, the father invites the son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, because the death of Christ, all people, all nations have now become his. He bought and paid for every person. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And hear this proclamation of praise in the book of Revelation about Christ's ownership of the nations. Revelation eleven fifteen, 15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now I get it. That in the book of Revelation, there that many people think that that's going to happen sometime in the future. That Jesus will be given the kingdom and Jesus will have the authority then. However, here's what Jesus said to his disciples before he went back to heaven in Matthew 28, 18. Let's listen to his words regarding how much authority he had even then before he ascended. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when did Jesus get the authority? All authority, in heaven and earth, was it when he ascended to the right hand of Father? No. When he was still here. See, Jesus already had the authority, all of it, and that's why, incidentally, he tells his disciples, "I have the authority to tell you to go make disciples." So what does this all mean? And how does it relate to soul freedom? Let me put it together. When Christ died, the father placed on his son all sin. His death paid for all sin now and forever. And this includes creation itself. For because of our sin, what happens to the creation? Death, decay, all that stuff. It's just a matter of time until the creation goes back the way the Lord wants it. And when it comes to people, the Father has given all authority to the Son. All nations are His inheritance. He is King. He is Lord of all, over all. And here's what that means: that King Jesus can do anything He wants to anybody, at any time, in any place. He has begun to rule and reign over all people. In the ultimate sense, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, isn't he? It is certainly true that in our sin-sick world, that there are many, many pockets of rebellion in his kingdom. But it's just a matter of time till everything gets put under his feet, including spiritual entities that are wicked. So how does this play out regarding the human race? Since Christ owns everybody, and he can do anything he wants. The all-important issue is reconciliation between the king and rebellious people. See, the king owns us, all of us. And now, through his grace, through his mercy, he invites us to get reconciled with him. See, either we become reconciled to the king and receive salvation, or we can reject the Lord and he casts us out of his kingdom at the end. You look at the parables of the kingdom and you'll see this over and over again. Now where a person goes when he's been cast out of the kingdom is a place that Jesus calls the lake of fire. That person will be there for eternity. Jesus has the authority to do so. He's got the right to do so because he owns every person on the planet. And when it comes to salvation, here's the bottom line. Christ bought and paid for all people. All sin is taken care of. Now and forever. But that does not mean, though, again, very important, that does not mean that all people will enjoy eternity with Christ. See, though all are in the kingdom, not everyone is in Christ. And there's a big difference. On the day of judgment, many will be cast out of his kingdom. And so between now and the day of his return, it's a matter of getting reconciled to and living loyally to the king. We all have a choice to make that happen. And that's why it's no longer a sin question. If Christ died for all sin, we don't have to worry about that. It's a son question. For salvation is only found in a loyal relationship with the king. Salvation is only found in a loyal relationship with the king. Believing loyalty is what salvation and soul freedom are all about. And these are glorious realities. Here's what soul freedom means. It means that we no longer have to deal with sin maintenance. As followers of Christ, we don't have to ever wonder, am I acceptable in God's eyes? Are my sins paid up? Have I confessed all of them? Etc. Etc. Since Christ paid for my sins, I don't have to worry whether I'm acceptable to him since I've been reconciled to him. And now, though, out of gratitude, I work on being increasingly loyal to Him, just like with any relationship. I work to get closer and closer in my relationship to Him. Again, of course, this does not mean that I just blow off sin and I just neglect it. No, my approach towards sin is this. I don't want to damage the relationship I have with the King who loves me and who died to save me. My focus now then becomes on Christ and my love relationship to him. We might want to put it this way. I glance at my sin. Taking care of it when the Holy Spirit convicts me. But then I return my gaze to the king. I continue my gaze on the king. And I, and I glance at my sin. I keep my eyes on him. And I learn his ways. And the more of the ways that I learn of him. The more soul rest and more soul freedom I will experience. And now we come full circle. The Lord Jesus established the new covenant with his men at what we call the Last Supper. The blood that he shed is what opened the floodgates of soul rest and soul freedom for his people. In the partaking of these elements of the bread and the cup, we remember King Jesus on the personal and the cosmic levels. And one of the early Christian hymns is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. And I think it would be a most excellent time right now for us to take a moment and say the words of, these, of this hymn together. This will be our corporate prayer as we pass out what represents Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. And so I invite you, before we pass out the elements, to say with me these magnificent words of our King. He who died rose again now seated at the Father's right hand, and will return with all power and great glory. to say with me. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? This is our king. This is the one that we are called to be loyal to because he's the one who died for all of us. And so I'm going to ask uh, Gabe to come. He's going to help me today. This is last Sunday with us for quite a while as he goes to get trained, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm going to ask him to pray over the elements and then we'll be passing out the elements but before i do i just want to remind you you know that this table is not grace united's table not be a member to be here but you do need to be a member of the kingdom of god as in being reconciled to the king to partake because this is remembrance for what jesus has done for us if you are part of the body of christ i encourage you to do this if you're not then let the elements pass by and if you are struggling with sin and you're not willing to give it up as Jesus says, you know, the Paul says, "Don't drink and eat damnation upon yourself." So, if you're not willing to give up your sin, not willing to repent, then make the elements pass on by. But this would be a great time right now for you to, you know, confess, you know, repent the sin, and then you can participate with us. So, Gabe, please. Yeah. hear the words of the apostle Paul. It's found in First Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he broke it he gave him thanks. He said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's go together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just us together. Scripture says that the, uh, that Jesus and the apostles sang a hymn They then they went out. And so we're going to do that. But we're going to pray first. And I'll pray over the offering, pray over the, the meal that we're going to have. And again, thanks for all the hands that brought the food and things. And then, uh, we will have our final song. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of your son. Lord, thanks is not enough. It just isn't. Lord, the profound, um, gift that you've given us, the, 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 the salvation that came only through the blood of Jesus. Uh, it, it just, it brings us to our knees. We are so unworthy, but in Christ, you've made us worthy. Lord, uh, we praise you. We thank you. So now, Lord, we ask to now, as we, um, as we have um, an opportunity to give, we pray, Lord, that you help us to give with a heart that's truly overflowing and full of gratitude, knowing, Lord, that you give us all good things and we can never outgive you. Father, we also want to thank you for the meal that we're going to have. We pray that you bless it. And Lord, help us have a great time around the table, the fellowship. And we ask now, Lord, as well, as we turn our attention to our singing too, that Lord, that you'll help us to sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, knowing, Lord, and realizing that that some people around the world cannot even sing. They have to whisper uh, songs because they can't sing out loud because of the authorities. But Lord, we know that your word is not bound. And in this place right here, We don't have to be quiet. So help us Lord to sing, we pray in Jesus' name.